Hi, I'm Jason Nichols, and I'm on the left. And I'm Vince Colonnese, and I'm on the right. And, and if, if we, we can't, can't find, find common, common ground, ground in this world, world today, today, then we're all just travelers. Passing each other in an international airport. And this great American experiment will be relegated to the trash bin of history. So let's come together to debate without yelling. And, and let's, let's save, save this, this nation. nation. From the Taliban to the California recall to vaccine mandates to government spending, we've got it all on this Vincent Jason Save the Nation. Is a terrorist by the name of Siraj Haqqani on the FBI's most wanted list that I've personally tried to kill on multiple occasions. You know, calling him the black face of white supremacy. Do you think the COVID vaccine should be mandatory? No, I don't think it should be mandatory. It's just false. I, I keep my door open for everybody. It's totally false. And those type of superlatives, it's just awful. Not one Republican is prepared to help us. Hey guys, welcome back to Vince and Jason Save the Nation. I'm Jason Nichols. That's my colleague, Vince Colonnese. And today we've got a great show for you. Vince, what's up? Uh, we were looking at the Sunday shows this weekend and I'll jump right into it. You've got uh, Congressman Mike Waltz on uh, Fox News uh, this weekend with Maria Bartiromo. And he was kind of talking about, you know, in his own way as a Republican, uh, assessing how the Biden administration is handling the Taliban. Take a look at this clip and I'll get your reaction on the other side. The uh, new government in Afghanistan. We're getting, you know, when is the administration going to let go of this fiction of hoping that we have an inclusive, uh, diverse government coming from the Taliban? Right. I mean, when are they going to let this go? And and Biden and Blinken keep saying, well, we're going to judge by their actions. Well, let's look at their actions. Let's look at the beatings uh, and killings of journalists who are covering protests of women that have been told you can't go to work. You can't go to university. Uh, that Taliban spokesman, when asked, why aren't we seeing any women as ministers? He basically said they can't handle it uh, and uh, need to stay at home and have babies. Uh, that's literally what the Taliban spokesman said. So here we have the Democrats that are the defenders of minorities and women's rights, and yet they're silent and they're engaging with a terrorist regime. Oh, by the way, now the head of the police and their border enforcement and deciding who can come and go is a terrorist by the name of Siraj Haqqani on the FBI's most wanted list that I've personally tried to kill on multiple occasions. It's responsible for the deaths of hundreds of Americans and is holding an American hostage right now as we speak, Navy veteran Mark Frerichs. Okay, Jason, one of the more badass things I think I've ever heard on a Sunday show <laughs> where, where a member of Congress says, yeah, I've been personally trying to kill that particular terrorist for years. Uh, remarkable. Uh, but what do you think of the um, of this assessment of the Taliban and, and the idea that the Biden administration keeps mentioning that they want to see uh, this government be inclusive and uh, and, you know, and kind of like treating them as if it's possible that they're going to be anything but um mm -hmm like archaic, uh, uh, crazy people. It's the Taliban. What do we expect? Yeah, I don't think that's what the Biden administration has said. And I think that he's <clears throat> he's kind of uh, taken this uh, the wrong way. I, I think the Biden administration has been pretty clear that the Taliban are not good people. Uh, and they have a fundamentalist view of, you know, of Islam, which is a beautiful religion, but they have a fundamentalist view of it and they are going to continue that way. And I, and I don't think the Biden administration is that's lost on them. I do think that they believe that there will be some concessions made 
because the Taliban wants to be part of the international community and wants to be recognized by the United States and other uh, you know, world powers. Um, I, I think what the Biden administration is saying is they're not good people, but sometimes we work with people that are not good people. And I think you need look no farther than the, the previous administration. Uh, I don't think that Trump was saying that Vladimir Putin was a good person or that uh, Xi Jinping is a good person or Kim Jong-un is a good person who and, and is trustworthy or wait for it, the Taliban who he worked with. I don't think that uh, the last administration was saying that at all. I think they were saying, you know, Trump was willing to meet with Iran with no preconditions. He said that in 2018 in a meeting with uh, the Italian prime minister, he, he repeated it over and over. Pompeo repeated it. Uh, Hogan Gidley, who I really like, uh, one of the few Trumpers that you know, I, I really like as a person, he pretty much said it as well. They've all broken it down and said he was willing to meet with uh, President Rouhani. I don't think that when you work with people, you know, and you have a shared objective that you're necessarily endorsing them and saying, oh, that they're going to be good people. They do want to mm -hmm. see what the Taliban government is going to be like. I think we all do. I think they understand that certain fundamental uh, parts of, uh, of their belief system are not going to change. And they're out of step with the West. They're out of step with the United States. They're out of step with other Muslim nations. I think that's, that's understood. But the, the Taliban will make certain concessions. One of the concessions that they've made is that women can uh, attend universities. They just have to do it, uh, you know, uh, in gender segregated uh, universities, um, which, you know, uh, I think is not necessarily out of step with some, you know, other Muslim nations. Whereas in the 90s, they would not allow women to get education at all. I think they want to be recognized. I don't think their views have changed. I think they want to be recognized by the rest of the world and they realize that they have to make certain uh, political decisions in order to do so. And so the Biden administration is essentially saying, we want to wait and see what exactly they are going to do. Uh, and there is kind of this push and pull relationship going on. And I think that that always happens. That happens mm. with Putin, that happens with Xi, that happens with Kim Jong-un, that happens with Iran. Um, that is part of uh, foreign policy and diplomacy. So, you know, none of that really surprised me. I think he's, you know, he's on with Maria Bartiromo on Fox News and he's, you know, he's going to stick out his chest a little bit. And uh, like you said, he's going to try and be a badass. Um, but I think it's, it's not necessarily uh, the best interpretation of what the Biden administration has said. Yeah, he is a badass though. The guy's a Green Beret. First, first Green Beret to ever be a member of Congress, uh, deployed to Afghanistan. Yeah. Oh. I think he had not Four bronze not. stars, two with valor decorations. Uh, so he he's clearly seen some action over there for sure. Yeah, um, no, I'm, I'm not I'm not questioning his badass credentials <laughs> you know, in that regard. <laughs> no, I didn't I'm think just you saying were. I think he's wrong the way he is uh, portraying the Biden administration there. Yeah. So he, the thing is, like, I, I agree with you. I think flattery plays a role in, in diplomacy. Uh, we saw it. You're right. In the Trump era. Uh, you know, compare the way that Trump would treat Kim Jong-un face-to-face or over communications versus the way the Trump administration treated uh, North Korea with its sanctions packages, punishing sanctions, never relenting. Uh, and the same is true of Russia and on and on. You go down the list, that's true. There was a lot of flattery with the hope of achieving diplomatic goals, while at the same time, 
punishing uh, sanctions on a lot of these world leaders. When it comes to the Taliban, it's just at what point do you run the risk of sounding completely naive about the nature of what's going to come next with the Taliban? You're right. It seems like the Biden administration is defaulted to flattery, or at least defaulted to not referring to the Taliban as terrorists and going easy on the rhetoric uh, because this is the best hand they have right now in light of the fact that we've completely pulled out our presence in the country. Um, but at the same time, like the idea that like they're going to somehow be some sort of progressive force for, for women or a meaningful contributor to curtailing climate change, it's just all preposterous. It's like, look, yeah. the, the reality is what we want right now is the Taliban not to use their restored power as a uh, uh, as a means to commit uh, terror attacks that are threats to American interests. That's our primary goal with the Taliban and Afghanistan. And uh, I think for Americans who hear all of this, they're like, this is the silliest thing ever that we'd expect them to be good faith climate change, you know, uh, uh, partners. Uh, let's let's just cut right to the chase about what we want out of them. Yeah, I, I think that um, we we do have stated goals in uh, the main and the main goal, as you stated, is, you know, not to allow them to be a haven for state sponsored terror um, or and terror that could reach. Europe or the United States or Africa or other places. Um, yeah. and, and that is that is the goal. Um, at the same time, there are certain elements of progress that we've made in the country uh, through this 20 year effort. And they don't want to see that completely rolled back uh, in, you know, in a couple of months. And if the Taliban wants recognition, if they want their bank accounts unfrozen, if they want all of that, then they have to play ball to a certain extent. And, and that is the leverage that the, the Biden administration is using in order to get them uh, to work uh, with us. Now, if they come out and start calling them terrorists and all that, then, you know, of course, the, the Taliban might go balls to the wall and be like, you know, screw it. They're never going to recognize us. They're already calling us terrorists. Just like, uh, you know, again, uh, we can talk about what North Korea does to its people, literally starving them. There mm -hmm. are people in North Korea who are literally starving at this moment. Um, and the, the freedoms in North Korea, uh, you know, are probably, you know, just as curtailed as they are in Afghanistan. Now the question, you know, of course, but Donald Trump as president said that he fell in love with uh, Kim Jong-un. Mm -hmm. And again, I, I would not have said that. <laughs> I think that no. that's a little much. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think Joe Biden saying, uh, you know, wait and see, or we want to see what they do in order to unfreeze their bank accounts, in order yeah. to recognize them, in order to have a diplomatic presence and a diplomatic relationship with them moving mm -hmm. forward. I think that that seems like a pretty measured response in, in my view. What if it's, we... not, it's not we fell in love. What if we you send know? Dennis Rodman in to tell to the Taliban and have him negotiate? Because <laughs> it seems like it worked. You know, I think people give credit to Trump, but maybe they shouldn't. Maybe that was a Dennis yeah. Rodman. Well, well, how do you, uh, how do you handle? <laughs> well, how do you think uh, the Taliban will react to Dennis Rodman if he shows up in a dress? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I think he, the Taliban's going to have an issue with that. If he if he brings old game tape from the '90s Bulls, maybe they'll be so distracted they won't even. Care. That is true. Um, like, man, that guy averaged 18 rebounds a game. You know, <laughs> maybe he wears a dress in his, in his in his spare time, but you know, 18 rebounds a worked. game. <laughs> That's right. Uh, all right. Hold by that. the Let's way, see. real, gotta... real quick before we move yeah. on, have mm. you seen the new pictures of Kim Jong Un? 
Yeah, he lost a ton of weight. No, he looks he looks amazing. So <laughs> I gotta give it to there's him. two there's two things that stand out to me about his health. Um, one, remember last year in the, in the midst of the pandemic, we started getting these reports that he was on his deathbed. Remember that? And like, people would ask Trump about it and he couldn't speak to it and you know, whatever. It was just all mystery. He had basically disappeared from any public visibility. And then when he finally pops back up in public, he is half as Kim Jong-un as he was before. Right. And, and you're looking at him and you're like, what the heck is going on? And the way I think it's being spun in North Korea is that he's like, not eating in solidarity with the people who can't eat or something. It's like a way to like, you know, like makes, make it seem like he's got credentials with the people. Oh, he's so wonderful. Um, but I, there, there has been some speculation that he's actually really sick and that he's lost a tremendous amount of weight as a result of illness. Again, this is all just kind of speculation from the outside. One picture that I saw though, if you, if you look at it, there's a picture of him with some sort of wound on the back of his head intermittently both revealed and covered in a bandage it's a it's a bizarre uh wound um so i don't really know what's going on obviously uh, yeah. but maybe we should send dennis rodman back in to find out That's <laughs> yeah um i well i don't i don't know that that uh dennis rodman would give us all the information either i, I no, like he, he wasn't pretty, that helpful last time yeah like they're pretty friendly but um i'll say that he looks 10 years younger um, he doesn't, you know, usually when people lose weight strictly from illness, they, it ages them as well. And he, mm. he looked, uh, really good in, in my opinion. He looked like he was relatively healthy, you know, uh, he's certainly not eating, you know, he's certainly not dieting in, in solidarity with the people. I just, you know, of course I don't buy that. Um, <laughs> that's too much for I you. Think he might be eating <laughs> keto or, you know, <laughs> You know, he might be on the Atkins in, you know, in uh-huh. solidarity. I'm not going to eat carbs, uh, but he's he's definitely not doing that. Um, <laughs> but it, it'll be interesting to see, you know, I mean, if it really is a health issue. Yeah, we'll see where he is in two years. You know, um, we'll see where he is in three or four years. You yes. Know, if if or, he's still with us, you know, if right. He's, if he's really that ill or if he so, hands the reins to his psychotic uh, torture sister. Yeah. Right. What a regime they got there. All right. Now let's take a look at a clip that involves the uh, California recall of Gavin Newsom set to take place this week. Uh, Larry Elder, the top candidate to replace him. The L.A. Times has staked out a position that Larry Elder is actually a white supremacist, which is a re- remarkable position for them to take. One of their writers uh, was on uh, CNN's reliable sources this weekend and had this to say about Larry Elder. He's clearly the leading contender among the Republicans in this recall. So uh, do you think he was able to get around the media and reach voters in California? Was he able to run a Trump playbook in the state? I mean, kind of. He's he's essentially been running his campaign on Fox News and on <laughs> right wing media outlets. Um, he he's refused to talk to large, you know, to, to nonpartisan and uh, media outlets and to journalists who are critical of him. Uh, has refused to answer difficult questions. Often uses uh, the few interviews that he does give as an opportunity to give a performance on on social media. Uh, you know, denouncing those journalists and um, playing the the victim. Um, um, but he has been able to reach the the minority of voters in California who embrace his his white supremacist worldview. Um, and you know he's he's co-opted this line by my fellow columnist uh, from from the headline, you know, calling him the black face of white supremacy, but he refuses to engage with the actual substance of our reporting, you know, the idea that 
he his I, his um, views were shaped by a, a well-known white supremacist named Jared Taylor, who he repeatedly quoted in early writings, um, that he plans to reverse all of the state's progress on immigrant rights and racial justice, um, and that he poses a very real threat to communities of color for all of the reasons that we've recorded it in the past. Okay, that was Gene Guerrero, an L.A. Times columnist. Uh, this idea that Larry Elder is a white supremacist, how does that fall on you, Jason? Well, I, I think when you look at the, the evidence um, in terms of what it is that he states, what he believes, and the people that he cites, um, I don't think what they're saying is so crazy. Uh, what they're saying is that he was influenced by Jared Taylor, who is known, and he's kind of funny if you've ever heard Jared Taylor talk. He talks like, a, like he's Ben Crosby in the 1920s. Anyway, uh, that's a another story but jared taylor you know who is uh fashions himself some sort of white supremacist academic and mm. um you know the, if you're getting your ideas from jared taylor then yeah i mean that that's pretty much white nationalism jared taylor is in a, believes in identitarianism and and thinks that the united states is a white nation and should be majority white um and that informs a, a whole lot of a whole host of other things you know, Elder is also close to Stephen Miller. You and I have talked about Stephen Miller and, and his relationships to white nationalism and, and, you know, to Richard Spencer and many others. Um, so I think that what they're saying and what they're getting at is not something crazy just because this guy has a little extra melanin, you know, um, not to mention a lot of his views are out of step with, with many people in California. He's against, uh, you know, dreamers, having a pathway to citizenship, which most Americans are for. You know, uh, dreamers are out there, they're, they're in military service, they're doing lots of things and that benefit our country. And many of them, you know, like I said, like my own sister-in-law have been here since they were three years old and know nothing else mm -hmm. other than the United States of America. And he is against them receiving, you know, having a pathway to citizenship. So okay. mm -hmm. that's out of step with, uh, with many Californians. Now, getting back, to the white nationalism part, he also cites, uh, you know, websites like like V Dare, which is known, <clears throat> excuse me, known as as a white nationalist website, one of the ones that many white nationalists uh, cite. And so I think that the concern there uh, that he is getting his information from white nationalists and that could inform some of his ideas uh, about you know policing, about uh, wealth gaps, about environmental justice, about uh, many things that many Californians and immigration and many things that many Californians and Californian families mm. are interested in, uh, I think is, is a fair critique, you know, based on, you know, based on the information. So believing that illegal immigration should not uh, be a pathway to American citizenship is not, is not a white supremacist position. I know you're not saying it is, but let me just stipulate that like it's not a weird position for someone to maintain that no someone who came here illegally no matter the circumstances of that arrival should not become an american citizen it's not it's not an unusual position to have a healthy yeah, no. majority a healthy percentage of the my country point, has yeah my that point position. was that it's out of step with with uh the people of california and, the and that may be country. that may be i just think that this but, sort of the the sweeping generalizations that all sort of congeal together in that LA Times woman's segment a moment ago. Um, yeah. 
uh, into where well, this guy is expressing white supremacist views. Um, I think that's grossly unfair. I think for any number of reasons. One of them is like, I again, I think it is pretty relevant that Larry Elder's black. And then you say that he's a white supremacist. In what world? Why would he be that? Um, but, but why would he? Why would he? and hurt himself in, yeah, in that but, way it doesn't it doesn't even stand a reason larry elder's a smart guy it's just that i think that allegation on his face is preposterous the, no, but but vince this, you don't cite jared taylor because no you i understand who jared I, taylor is yes but let me let, let me just you don't let cite me, v dare let me reference you, those things you get it right i do but let me reference those things for a moment and and what i understand about his citations of those First of all, because he cites someone does not mean he ingests their entire worldview. I can't speak to uh, the moment at which he cited Jared Taylor. They say this happened early in Larry Elder's career. I don't know what that. I don't know what that means. I don't know how well Jared Taylor was understood to be some sort of white supremacist. And I don't. I don't. I. I can't contextualize that for you. Here's what I can say. I know that the citations that he invoked involved crime rates. So these are you don't even have to go through Jared Taylor to establish crime rates. You can go to the, the FBI crimes uh, places, things like that. So if he's just cribbing crime rates, that to me doesn't necessarily that doesn't in any way suggest that um, Larry Elder is therefore espousing white supremacist views. The other is that he included, I think Vidare was referenced as a link he included in an email or something. I mean, this is this is polit uh, politics, obviously. So people are going to dig through everything and say, oh my goodness, Larry Elder included a reference to a VDR link. Okay, but does that tell me something clear about his views? And I would argue, no, it doesn't. Now, is it, can you use that as a way to say, oh, that's interesting, or he should answer more questions about this? Sure. But to jump to the conclusion, as the LA Times has done now with multiple columnists, that Larry Elder is a white supremacist is one of the most preposterous allegations in all of American politics. And I'll yeah, just end with this. Last week, that egg hurling incident that you and I talked about where a white woman in a gorilla mask throws an egg at Larry Elder, the fact that that didn't get treated as a racial incident by the media, which would broadly do that, that were all of the parties re uh, reversed, um, is I think a pretty clear indictment of how unfair the world is uh, for a black Republican candidate. They're not, the standards are completely different uh, and in, in Larry Elder's case, he's experiencing exactly that. So if we're going to talk about, uh, you know, what he actually cited uh, from Jared Taylor and about crime rates, you mentioned that, you know, we can look at the FBI, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that uh, he said on a, in a BET interview, Larry Elder, that is, uh, that 90% of rapes, murders, and robberies are committed by Black perpetrators. Now, according to government data, that's completely false. He also says that, you know, Black on white crime is, is out of control. That is, those are talking mm -hmm. points that are white supremacist talking points. The idea that Black men are out raping people, you know, uh, and committing 90% of rapes, that's a white supremacist talking point that is absolutely false and incompatible with with FBI data. Right. So again, so I don't know what he they, is using what, white supremacist hmm. talking points. Hold on, give, give me an opportunity to finish. You got it. Go ahead. Uh, if he's using white supremacist talking points, the same things that we if we took that back, let's say uh, a century ago, that was the same talking point that 
led to black people and black men being uh, hanged from trees. Mm -hmm. That was the very same talking point that was used. So if we are going to say it's, you know, that Larry Elder, I'll look, I will take your word for it that maybe Larry Elder is just very misinformed. And I'm not surprised if he's getting his information from VDARE and Jared Taylor. So maybe he's he's not every day thinking, you know, like you said, it's preposterous that he thinks that he hates himself and he wants to harm himself. I also think that there is a phenomenon where people like to feel like the special person amongst a group. You know, I'm the special, you know, we used to talk about this phenomenon in 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 hip hop, like there would be the one right white guy who would, you know want to be cool and sometimes he think he could say the n-word and stuff like that and it's like no you're not that cool like it's it's i think there is that phenomenon going on where people like to be the special black guy uh in, in a certain group but let's cast all of that aside he is citing things that were used against black people and make life dangerous for black people mm-hmm. so i think that there are many people who would say yes Unless you get better informed, you are the black face on white supremacy. And if you are okay. getting your information yeah. from Jared Taylor, you're getting your information from VDARE, you're getting your information from Stephen Miller, who gets his information from, you know, all of those crazy sites uh, that, you know, we don't even need to mention. Uh, then, of course, I think people have a strong argument. I, I don't know, you know, maybe if Larry Elder had the chutzpah to come on this show and we could actually ask him about it. But again, as she said in the, in the clip, he only goes to friendly media. He won't go and answer difficult questions uh, from people who may oppose him. So again, we don't know the answer to this because he won't co- He wouldn't come on our show when we invited him. All right. So I'm trying to, I'm just trying to piece together some of the things you just said, but I, I and I want to address all of them because we have limited time, but um you know, one, when he, anyone who cites data, you've got to know, you have to contextualize it over what time period is he talking? When did that occur? Um, so here's what I do know. It was uh, 2018. There, the homicide statistics um, showed that the majority of homicides in the country were committed by black people. It was like 50, it was closer, much closer to 50%. It was like 56%. And so in other words, homicide perpetrators were overrepresented by black people who are only 13% of the population. Now, that would be worthwhile to say just as a simple fact that you kind of invoked a moment ago this idea that, well, information like this or talking points like this can be misused by people with bad intentions as a justification to do awful things. And you're right, that's true. That can definitely happen. It has happened in history. Mm -hmm. But that should not be um a barrier for us to discuss facts right sure so but you said 56 percent. you didn't say 90 percent. that's right again most most of this is intra-racial violence you have also cited this that is black men on black men that's not what larry elder is saying you know it's black men who commit violence against other black people usually black men and part Mm -hmm. of that of course goes back to the fact that we are racially and residentially segregated Black people live amongst black people. White people live amongst white people. 86% of white people who are involved in homicides kill other white people. Yeah, Why? yeah. Because those are the people who are in their social circles. That's right. Um, and it's the same thing where, we're, uh, you know, it's social and residential segregation. So it's usually again, somebody you know personally. Right, exactly. So yeah. this idea that there's some sort of, 
you know, black on white murder rate that's out of control is, is absolutely absurd. And it's something that could be extremely damaging. And, and he's not getting his information, obviously, from the place that you got your information. I think mm -hmm. that 56%, it, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's tragic. It's something that, you know, uh, many of us uh, in the United States need to figure out. We need right. to, to do something about. Um, there's no question about that. But he also, you know, it, we can go into a whole lot of statistics that he gets wrong. But the fact that he's getting his information, not from the FBI, not from the place where Vince Colonnay searched it, which makes perfect sense, right. you know, and we can have a conversation about that, but he's getting it from Jared Taylor, so from VDARE, from the wrong sources. And if you're going to do that and take things out of context and you have the kind of audience that, uh, that Larry Elder has, you have yeah. a responsibility to, to be true to the facts. Not yes. to spout these kinds of things. I agree. No, no, no. I, I completely agree with you. So this is, I mean, this is where you and I are going to find violent agreement. You need to be factual. And when you speak, you need to speak with precision, especially the more responsibility you have, the, the bigger the platform you have, uh, the, the higher the call to that precision is, I think. Um, just because it's good to inform people and, and a better informed populace is uh, a, a better pop, a populace that can make better decisions about who they elect and why. So for all those reasons, I completely agree. I just think that using the idea that in citations he referenced some people is a basis for saying that he's a white supremacist is um, is awful logical reasoning, uh, and it's designed to I think impugn him uh, and and his character. Um, you can be you can you can uh, object to hey like choose better sources or your stats are wrong or whatever, but calling him something that vile I think is 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 uh, deeply unfair. I do. Um, if you well, like, let, can I, can I just ask you, is it fair to call Jared Taylor a white nationalist or a white supremacist? Yeah, because those are the views that he, I mean, that's him. That's, that's him through and through as, as far as I can tell, those are all the views he espouses. Okay. So let me ask you this. If let's say Barack Obama were to cite, if you found out that he was reading and citing more than once, Minister Farrakhan. Mm -hmm. Would you find that problematic? Yes. Okay. So in so, other words, in other words, that would be the kind of thing that would lead me down the same rabbit hole I went with Larry Elder. What was he citing? Why was he citing this? Under what in, in what context? Um, and and that you know that kind of thing. And does it inform his worldview? So it is entirely in bounds to ask these questions about Larry Elder. I think it's completely out of bounds to reach what I think is an illogical conclusion about that data. That's all I'm arguing. Yeah, no, I, I, I get it. And, you know, uh, the only thing I will say is, um, you know, there's, there's an old saying, and maybe, maybe this is a, a, a bad uh, comparison because I'm, you know, I'm kind of winging it here, but you are what you consume. And I think he's consuming information from the wrong areas. And I think while it may not be, you know, and we can debate whether he actually holds certain views, but if he's, if these are the types of sources that he is citing, if he is an influence over people like Stephen Miller or vice versa, uh, I think I think that that is something that the the voters in California should be concerned about and should mm -hmm. ask questions about. I think you know it's fair to say, okay, before we put a label 
Let's ask questions. I think that's right. fair. But when we look at some of the statements that Larry Elder has made, uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, it, it starts to, you know, lean to in a particular direction. Um, you know, and, and again, I, I think that was probably a clickbaity title. Um, the person who wrote it, um, I read the article um, and I think she is I, th I think she's sincere about about the conclusion she reaches, but I think we should look at the information that she cites as to why, and I think her primary point is that Larry Elder is, is going to be dangerous for communities of color because of his beliefs, not because of you know a citation or an email. It's because of his beliefs um, and his worldview, which is in line with some of the people that he cites. So mm -hmm. I, I think that's what it comes down to. But we can, you know, I think yeah. we're in agreement about some things. Um, you know, we we slightly disagree on others, but uh, we'll see what happens on Tuesday. Yes, we will. All right, let's move to Joe Biden and uh, his position on vaccine mandates. Uh, in the White House, a number of people have taken a position, including Jen Psaki and Joe Biden and Rochelle Walensky, uh, over the past year, uh, saying that, you know, the federal government just can't do this. We can't mandate vaccines. And then we got a big speech from President Biden on Thursday saying, well, actually, we're going to mandate vaccines for companies with over 100 employees. Uh, the exception will be that you'll be subjected to an onerous testing regime if you do not get vaccinated. Now, on the Sunday shows this weekend, Surgeon General Dr. V. Uh, uh, v. Vake uh, came out and uh, talked about this on CNN's State of the Union. Take a look. Joe Biden said in December and what White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said just this July. Do you think the COVID vaccine should be mandatory? No, I don't think it should be mandatory. I wouldn't demand it be mandatory. But and that's not the role of the federal government. Um, that is the role that institutions, private sector entities, uh, and others may take. So, Doctor, what changed? Well, Dana, it's good to be with you. And and let's talk about uh, the announcement and, and what you know what, what prompted it. You know, the announcement the president made uh, includes a number of measures that will help us address the Delta variant. The requirements uh, that we just heard about are, are one part of that, but they're only one part of that. It includes also measures to increase our testing capacity to shore up our hospitals and healthcare systems which are struggling with Delta. But what the president and what all of us have said as public health leaders from the earliest part of this pandemic is that we have to use every lever of government uh, and we all in the private sector have to do everything we can to tackle this virus. The requirements the president announced are an example of that. Uh, earlier in the summer, uh, the president had announced requirements for federal workers mm -hmm. uh, to attest to vaccination. And this is another step in that direction. Not only will federal workers now be required uh, to vaccinate with an exemption for medical or religious purposes, but also, you know, healthcare systems that do business with Medicare and Medicaid. 17 million healthcare workers will be required. 80 million uh, business uh, workers who have, uh, you know, 100 employees or more will also now be required, uh, you know, under the OSHA mm -hmm. rule, uh, which was in process to either get vaccinated or to get tested regularly. So the, the key thing to understand, Dana, is number one, the data tells us that these requirements work to increase vaccinations. Number two, a lot of businesses <clears throat> are actually relieved that these are going into place. And we've heard a lot of feedback from the business roundtable and others that this will help create safer workplaces. But finally, Dana, keep this in mind. This is what we've got to do to get to the next phase of this pandemic response so that we can get through this and get back to normal once and for all. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy, uh, 
notice that he did not answer that question, uh, Jason. He, she, she asked him, you know, what changed for uh, both Biden and for Jen Psaki? No answer from the Surgeon General. Yeah, I mean, um, I think what he was trying to get across, and, you know, I, I understand that he didn't directly answer the question, but uh, I think uh, what he was trying to get across was that, you know, pretty much things are not improving at the rate that we need them to improve. Public health is not improving. And to avoid some of the things that could happen uh, is, you know, with lockdowns and, and all of that kind of stuff, we have to do, uh, take, you know, desperate measures. I think there was a time when uh, the, the pandemic was looking like it was going to head in a, in a particular direction. I think at one point, uh, the Biden administration believed that the majority of Americans uh, would get two shots of the vaccine or one shot uh, if they're getting the J&J, and that we would be in a different place right now. We're not. Um, so I think that they are trying to, you know, in the interest of public health, uh, circumstances change, times change. And I think everybody's just exhausted with this whole thing. Yeah. You know, we, we just want it to be done with. Um, now, I think that there are certain questions. One, you've often raised, uh, and that is the people who have antibodies because they've had COVID before. So I think you're going to see some lawsuits based on that. Um, but even then, we don't know how long or can't estimate really how long those antibodies last from from the stuff that I was trying to find. Yeah. And so in, in a lot of cases, because we've you've had people who have caught COVID twice within a couple of months. So in that case, the rigorous testing still makes sense. You don't have to get vaccinated, but you have to get tested. Um, of course, OSHA has but not wait, released what... On that, on that point, Jason, sure. why not do that to vaccinated people, though? Because aren't, my understanding is that people who get vaccinated are getting breakthrough infections at higher rates than people who are getting reinfected with COVID. So shouldn't so, we routinely uh, so test the vaccinated? The, the, what I've seen is that 95% uh, of people under 65 who are vaccinated mm -hmm. uh, do not get COVID or, you know, are protected from COVID. Yes. Uh, it's, it drops significantly if you're over 65. So if you're over 65, I would tell you, if you're going to go to that football game, wear a mask, um, even if you're vaccinated, to be honest with you, uh, you know, because I think the, the coverage goes to about 79, 80% if you are um, over 65. So I think that they need to be a little more careful than, than a young, healthy person. But um, in terms of, of reinfections, I haven't, you know, I don't know, maybe you can show me the numbers on that, but I haven't, I haven't really seen numbers on it. And, it's and you're been right. The, the that, big, the big, the robust Israeli study showed okay. that those people, and these are thousands and thousands of people, um, showed that people who had prior infection were 27 times better protected than those who were double vaccinated yeah, with the we, Pfizer vaccine. Again, we don't know uh, for the amount of time, you know, that their antibodies last. And, and that's the, the thing we've seen. And, and the same vary. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, that's 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 fair. But I would say the same is true with vaccination, though, too. The, the, the idea is like we've only had the vaccine for a limited window. Right. And so we don't know the amount of time that that vaccine well, is going to provide. Yeah, that, that's true. I think that that's being studied. Um, and that's why uh, very soon you're going to see boosters. Um, yeah. I, I think it, within a couple of months, because they are finding that certain vaccines, particularly Pfizer, 
yeah. uh, which of course would be the vaccine that I got, um, is, is starting to wear off. The protection yes. is starting to wear off. So you're, you're going to get boosters. I, I would bet by November, December, you know, people are going to, they're going to start really pushing people to get the booster shot. For what, for what it's worth, just if I can put my personal experience in here. Sure. Um, you know, I had COVID early this year. You and I have talked about this. Uh, and, um, and I'm at a mild case. A number of my family members had it, had mild cases, all recovered. Uh, thank goodness. And, yeah, um, thank goodness. and uh, so I felt good about the immunity that was conferred from that. Um, one of the reasons is, you know, obviously I obsessively read about it, but also because I would talk to um, Johns Hopkins University professor, Dr. Marty McCary, who would often tell me, I interview him pretty frequently, and he would tell me about, yeah, the natural immunity is great. I wish the federal government more. Um, it's, it seems like it's really effective. And before the Israeli study came out, he had been suggesting that, you know, if you're, you know, I'd recommend maybe get a single shot, a single dose. And that's not an unusual opinion. A lot of doctors have said, if you've been prior infected, a single dose uh, is probably all you need. Um, and if, if at all, and if you get it, it'll just, it'll make you kind of superhuman against the virus. Um, so I did that. I went and got a single shot of Pfizer because I was listening to his advice and I thought that that makes a lot of sense to me. But with all of that said, I'm very opposed to um, this mandatory world that is being created around us, um, including by the president this past week, where people are being told, you have to do this, no exceptions. They're being, and I, I know you've, you've already cited that uh, you think that that's reasonable, that we should have some questions about natural immunity. I, I do too. You know, in Western Michigan, there's a hospital system over the weekend that announced that they're going to allow their employees who have been infected already um, to not be subjected to the vaccine mandate if they don't want to get vaccinated. The way they're going to prove it is twofold. They're going to have paperwork that proves that they once had a positive test for COVID. You can get that, mm -hmm. you know, you'll have that paperwork already, obviously. Right. And then the second is they want them to take, I believe it's an antigen test, like some sort of proof of your body has defenses within it. I don't know if, I don't know if that's antibodies or T cells, but the point is, right. I want you to come back and say, okay, you've got proof of defenses and proof of a positive test, you can opt out of getting um, the vaccine if you so desire. And yeah. I think that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, if especially with healthcare workers who we asked to stay inside those buildings over the course of the last year and a half, they've been soldiering it out, working with COVID patients. So many of them got immunity just by working with COVID patients. You know, why bring the hammer down on them and say, hey, if you don't get the vaccine, you're fired. And they're saying to you, well, wait a second, I have natural immunity. Why would you fire me? at least in this one Western Michigan hospital system, they're saying, okay, that's a fair argument. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that that sounds 100% fair. Um, you know, I, I, like I said, I haven't, I haven't looked at that particular case out there in Western, in, Mich in Western Michigan, but I will say that that sounds fair. Um, number one, they're, they're going through some sort of testing regimen. They're, they're yeah. getting tested to find out, because I think most people's concern is that you're going to get a cold, you know, someone got a cold and they're like, I think I caught COVID and now I'm naturally immune. And so now I shouldn't have to do this when there's really no evidence that they actually had COVID. What they got was you yeah. know, a common cold or the flu right. or some other illness. And then, you know, of course, uh, they get COVID, they spread it around and, and some vulnerable person ends up Can't on a ventilator. So I, I think in, and in particular, healthcare workers, if you are not someone with, with uh, natural antibodies, excuse me, to COVID, and you work in a hospital setting, 
if you want to, you know, I saw there was a, there was a thing really quickly. Sorry. I, I know you wanted to interject, but let me just say this That's really okay. quickly. Yeah. Um, there was a, a, a hospital in, I believe, upstate New York, where a bunch of people have quit because, uh, you know, the, the maternity ward, because they're afraid they don't want to get vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And they work in a maternity ward. Now, mind you, uh, 72 women have died, pregnant women have died of COVID and their, or, or their babies in, uh, in, in, um, in Mississippi. Uh, excuse me, not their babies, the women. The women have died. So these are, you know, giving birth to motherless children because they were unvaccinated. And you want to potentially give that to these pregnant women, potentially give that Mm-hmm. to these babies or whoever else people who are vulnerable around and then they they quit out of protest and now they can't deliver babies in this particular hospital so these women are going to be diverted to places that are much farther away to give birth to me right. you're not really a, a a healthcare worker there you you really aren't concerned with people's health care you know I, I it's really frustrating um because there are so many nurses who probably don't want to get the shot, don't want to get vaccinated, but they realize that it's in the interest of the health of their uh, their patients. So they do it. You know, they soldier up, they go to work, they get the shot, and they continue doing their jobs. And it's really frustrating to see people in a healthcare setting. It's one thing if you work, you know, you work alone and you're, you know, fixing cars or something, you mm-hmm. know, uh, you know, you having to get vaccinated. And you work at Jiffy Lube. All right, I I I get it. You could be like, yo, I could just wear a mask. I get that. Right. Or or I'm not around people very much. I'm pretty much socially distant. I get that kind of like hesitancy there. But if you're a hospital worker, I I don't understand that. You know, you have vulnerable people that are around you all the time. And a COVID outbreak in a place that is taxed, like a lot of our ICUs are around the country, and you get a COVID outbreak amongst the hospital staff, that is a recipe for disaster. You don't have enough doctors and nurses to treat an overwhelmed uh, ICU or an overwhelmed emergency medicine area. I, I, you know, I I don't understand that. And that's- Well, I want to, I do want to know more about the rationale by which uh, these nurses objected to the vaccine mandate in their case. Um, yeah. You know, if it was on the basis of natural immunity and the, the hospital said, screw you, just get vaccinated anyway. I mean, maybe they have a case. I always do think yeah. that it's interesting uh, that- I think that's fair. I, I do always do think it's interesting when you get people who are medically trained. I mean, there's plenty of quacks out there. There's people who who uh, abuse their medical training and say things that are, are incorrect. But at the same time, you know, those nurses by and large are in a much better position than I am to assess health and, and, and what's good for patients. Uh, being as medically trained as they are. So I would like to know more that le- the, about the circumstances that led to their resignations uh, in the face of all of this. Um, let me ask you just just a basic question. I, I realize you, you mentioned at the outset that, um, that you know, things have changed. Our picture has changed in the United States enough that it may justify some of the action that Joe Biden took last week. Is there any part of Biden's announcement last week that does make you uncomfortable? The, the notion of mandatory vaccines for employees in um, companies, private companies with over 100 employees, or else they have to submit to testing on a weekly basis. You know, he, he expressed, you know, 
he said, as president of the United States, he goes, we've been patient, but our patience has worn thin. He said, this is not about freedom. This is, I think he said something about, this is about like health and protecting each other. Um, any part of that, that gave you hesitancy or did you think it was, was just fine? I mean, did, were you, were you okay with it? So um, I think the, the first part when, when I hear, and, that, and this is what I think a lot of people are, are missing. When I heard, you know, we're going to mandate vaccines um, for all American workers and you won't have the opportunity to work. First, my first thought was that a lot of African-Americans are going to lose their jobs. Um, and, and that was a major concern of mine. Uh, a lot of African-Americans, a lot of Latinos, you know, you know, far too many African-Americans and Latinos are losing their lives to COVID. Right. But at the same time, I was thinking that this could spell economic disaster for black and brown communities. Um, however, when you understand that if they choose not to, because you can't really force somebody to get something injected into their bodies, uh, you can compel them by saying, all right, well, you're just going to have to get tested, uh, you know, every week or, or whatever the time period is, you know, then I start to think, you know, that, that kind of gave me a little more relaxation. I think that that is fair, you know, that if you're not going to get the vaccine, then you're going to have to be tested. I mm -hmm. think there are a lot of situations at a lot of jobs where if you choose not to do one thing and they offer you an alternative, you know, I don't, I don't really see that as, you know, being as oppressive as saying, all right, well, you've got to get this shot or you can't work in your field. Um, so I think that the fact that people can opt out um, if they take the necessary uh, precautions and they stay safe and they wear masks, you know, uh, and, and they get tested, I, I really don't see a problem with it the way I would have if it were just blanket you must get vaccinated unless you have a religious exemption. Yeah. Um, and I do. Th I, I think I also just really quickly, I, I, what they're doing in Western Michigan, I haven't read about it, but from the way you described it, I think that's, that's fair. You know? Um, yeah. I think they should be tested probably less frequently than others. Uh, if you've already had COVID and you can prove it uh, through your, you know, antigen test, you know, I think they should, probably have to get tested, I don't know, once a month or something like that to make sure that they haven't been reinfected. I'll let the public health uh, professionals and the epidemiologists and, you know, all those other really smart people deal with that, you know, when they think that's appropriate. But mm -hmm. I would say, you know, um, that making some room for natural immunity, you know, makes sense. And I, and I actually believe since we haven't really seen this, we've only seen Joe Biden give his speech. We haven't really seen what OSHA is going to say um, in their final, uh, you know, release Roll. of all of this. So mm -hmm. I think they're going to make a whole lot more concessions. I think Joe Biden just wanted to come out and sound tough. But I think, you know, OSHA realizes we don't want a gazillion lawsuits. Yeah. And we don't want to give you grounds for lawsuits. There are going to be a gazillion lawsuits. That's, that's just fact. Even though the business community supports this, even the Chamber of Commerce, even the Business Roundtable, which is run by Joshua Bolton, who was uh, a former aide to George W. Bush, all these you know, people, so <laughs> conservative people, you know, the conservative business community, they are behind it, number one, because now they don't have to mandate <laughs> things. It took it off of their plate and you know, 
people will be looking more at the president. Yeah. Um, but I, I think he came out forceful. Uh, but I think OSHA's rules are going to be a lot softer than the way Joe Biden made it sound. I got to be honest, when I hear the White House citing the business roundtable in the Chamber of Commerce, it makes me want to run for the hills. I'm just like, <laughs> whatever this is, I don't want to be a part of it. Um, let's move on. Let's, let's jump into another issue, another fight that's going down. Uh, this one between Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat, and Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Democrat. Take a look. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said this about you in a tweet. Manchin has weekly huddles with Exxon and is one of many senators who gives lobbyists their pen to write so-called bipartisan fossil fuels bills. It's killing people. Sick of this bipartisan corruption that masquerades as clear-eyed moderation. That's this is your fellow Democrat. Well, is it true that you have weekly meetings with Exxon not. and other absolutely lobbyists not. You for fossil fuels? No, they don't. Weekly meetings? I don't. It's just false. I, I keep my door open for everybody. It's totally false. And. Those type of superlatives, it's just awful. Continue to divide, divide, divide. I don't know the young lady that well. I really don't. I've met her one time, I think, between sets here, but that's it. So we have not had any conversations. She's just speculating and saying things because she wants to. She's not the only one. I'm sure you've heard. There are a number of your fellow Democrats who say that you're opposed to this because you're bought and paid for by corporate donors. I'm opposed to it because it makes no sense at all. I just gave you the facts. I've said this. You're entitled to your own facts. I mean, your own uh, your own opinions. You're just not entitled to create your own facts to support it. And that's exactly what they're doing. The facts I've given you is the transition's happening. Reliability. Look what happened in Texas. It was natural gas that basically shut down in Texas that caused all that horrible carnage to people. It was awful. Kind of, kind of an amazing moment. So you have Joe Manchin there uh, saying, no, I'm not inviting Exxon uh, lobbyists onto the houseboat every week. I don't know where she got that. Yeah. Uh, so that was interesting. But he also was like, well, my, my door is open to anybody. <laughs> you know, so I, I think he's having some meetings with those Exxon people. And, you know, um, I bet he, he is. is he is from, uh, you know, a coal state. Um, I, I think, you know, what, what one thing that was kind of interesting to me uh, was his point about natural gas. Like, how did that how did that factor in? to what he was trying to get across. Like, I'm, I'm not clear exactly. Was he referencing he, Texas? Was that the, the point he was yeah, making? Just yeah, so I, I, you, can you clarify what point he was trying to make there? I think, remember last year when you had, um, you had windmills and stuff that were freezing up? And, yeah, but that's not natural gas. And he's saying that basically getting away from natural gas and going towards like renewable energy sources like wind uh, ended up being... Um, not to the benefit of Texans, like relying on wind at all as a part of their grid. If I had to guess at to what yeah. as to the assessment that he was making. Yeah. Uh, it didn't sound like that's what he, I don't, I don't know, but if that's what he was saying, he's wrong. Uh, the problem even wasn't natural gas, nor was it, um, nor was it the wind turbines. It was the failure of ERCOT, of ERCOT to uh, winterize those things because uh, you know who uses wind turbines? Vermont. Mm -hmm. You know who uses wind turbines? Idaho. Have you ever been in a, in a winter in Vermont or Idaho or Maine? Yeah. <laughs> like, or New Hampshire? Like, those are some cold winters. And guess yes. what? And Texas, winter, is, not, Texas right. is not winterized like that. Right. So they didn't winterize that. And, they, and it was actually more natural gas um, than it was the wind turbines 
that also froze up because they didn't winterize that because they didn't expect to have temperatures that cold in Texas. And I, I kind of get it, but I think one of the things that we're learning around the country with the way that our weather is changing, again, I would say it's climate change, uh, is that we've got to be prepared uh, for things that aren't necessarily the abnormal to become more normal. Um, and that's what Texas didn't do. So I think Joe Manchin is being a little disingenuous there. In terms of the dis disagreement with, um, with Ocasio-Cortez, uh, you know, first of all, you find this within any party. I think one of the things that you stated that I agree with uh, a while back in one of our earlier shows that all of you should go back and watch um, was that Joe Manchin is the most powerful man in the Senate right now. You know, he, he is like the decider of a whole lot of things. Um, and I think there are a lot of people who are coming with their hands out. And I think also, as I've said, Joe Manchin is gonna face a very difficult reelection race uh, when that comes around. I think it's 2024, if I'm not mistaken. Um, he's gonna face a very difficult uh, reelection race. So he needs to stay as centered as possible. He can't seem like he is just a Democrat team player uh, because West Virginia is the Trumpiest state in the country, literally. Uh, they are the biggest Trump supporters in the country. So, you know, Joe Manchin realizing that, really realizing that he has a, a D next to his name, uh, he has to play it very safe, play both sides, right. make sure that he seems very balanced in order to, to win again. And he has... It's going to be tough. And he has an obligation to protect energy interests in West Virginia. So, you know, he doesn't actually need Exxon to be beaten down his door or to even be, you know, meeting with him on the houseboat to in order for that message to be heard loud and clear that he needs to be protecting the energy industry within his own state and the jobs within his own state. Uh, so it, it makes sense that he would oppose AOC's climate agenda uh, completely. And uh, that's where the standoff is. And so he's looking out for the interest of his constituents. Yeah, but uh, here's here's the thing, Vince. Uh, like, I'm I'm sorry. Did you finish what you were saying? No, go I, for I, it. I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, here's here's the thing where I disagree, and that is, I've been through West Virginia. You know, uh, you know, Richie and I were there not that long ago, like, or at yeah. least very close. Like, I, I I go through West Virginia or that area. You know, that kind of tri-state Pennsylvania, Maryland, West Virginia area. If there's anything they need. It's infrastructure work. You know what I mean? They need, you know, those kind of development projects. Right. So why Manchin, him, that's why Manchin supported it. Right. Right. But him, him turning down, you know, um, some of the, the things that I think actually would create more jobs than, than lose in terms of uh, restructuring energy. Um, and him saying, no, we need a strategic pause. We, we don't want the $3.5 trillion. Uh -huh. I think a lot of that would go to places like West Virginia, and, and they actually need that. Well, let's stay on this $3.5 trillion spending package for a moment. You've got Bernie Sanders, the senator from Vermont, which you just cited a moment ago, and it's rough winners, uh, going on the Sunday shows this weekend, arguing for it. And here's how he did that. Senator Manchin said 
pretty explicitly, he's opposed to the clean energy provisions that you are going to put into this bill as you write it. He also wants to see uh, more evidence that the child tax credit is working and it's going to the proper people, not wealthier people, before making it permanent. He doesn't support raising the corporate tax rate as high as you want. So this isn't just about the overall dollar figure. It's not just about the timeline. It's a disagreement, a pretty deep disagreement about some of the fundamental priorities that you have been talking about. How do you bridge that? But, you know, but Donna, please understand that within the context of the Democratic caucus, and I hope everybody in America knows, we have no Republican support for this. You know, we're talking about Mr. Manchin, but the real outrage is that you got not one Republican who are prepared to extend the $300 direct payment for working parents so that they can raise their children in security and dignity. Not one Republican is prepared to help us take on the existential threat of climate change. Now, in terms of taxation, at a time when you have billionaires and large corporations in this country, in some cases not paying a nickel in federal income tax, you know what, we should and can pay for this entire $3.5 trillion bill, which by the way, extends over 10 years, we should pay for it by demanding the wealthiest people, largest corporations in this country to stop paying their fair share of taxes. Yeah. All right, Bernie Sanders, what do you think? Uncle Bernie. Yeah, uh, I agree, you know, uh, surprise, surprise, I agree with Bernie Sanders. And I think um, <laughs> yeah. one of the things that, you know, when we're talking about Joe Manchin and even with the clip that we played earlier, like, as I said, you know who needs investment in education? West Virginia. You know who needs, you know, childcare? People need help with childcare? West Virginians. So if I could suggest something to Joe Manchin, and I, I understand the difficult, precarious situation he finds himself in, and he's trying to be like, you know, right on that line and saying, hey, let's take a pause. Let's, you know, do this for less money. Um, what I would say to him, is how about you go back to West Virginia and promote this to West Virginians? Tell them like Bernie Sanders has been trying to tell the nation that this shouldn't come out of your pockets and it won't. It's gonna come out of the pockets of the guy who who made Tesla. It's gonna come out of the pockets of the guy who made Amazon. That's, those are the people who should pay for this. And again, this is an opportunity, of course, with climate change, it's gonna create jobs, We're going to get more energy jobs. And at the same time, we're going to make it so that women can work because they get help with child care. They get, you know, you get uh, early childhood education. Mm -hmm. You get so many things that West Virginians desperately need. But instead, it's made into this red blue, you know, situation, which, by the way, you and I agree, like, uh, we, we are so partisan right now that people aren't looking at issues uh, just on their face, like, do right. I agree with this or do I disagree? Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, if, if a lot of Republicans actually, all of a sudden they've gotten concerned with spending again, they were not concerned with spending for the last four years, but then all of a sudden they're concerned with it. Yeah. Like, come on, like, we, you know, people in West Virginia and those parts of the country, you know, uh, they need these kinds of investments and it should be paid for by the wealthiest Americans who have more money than they can spend in 20 lifetimes. So 
A couple things here. One, Manchin is making the debt argument. And again, Democrats are in power. He's a Democrat and he's been he's been writing op-eds to this effect that, you know, this debt, we've got at some point we got to like rein it in because uh, it is going to hurt us. Uh, Three and a half trillion dollars would amount to the single biggest piece of legislation ever passed uh, by the United States Congress and uh, and obviously would change our debt picture pretty meaningfully. Um, and so there, there is that. Now, the, the spending programs you're talking about, it, you cited it a moment ago. I think what Manchin wants is a scaled down version of this social spending package. So Democrats want, in addition to the infrastructure package, which you could argue how much of that is actually infrastructure, but that is a separate piece of legislation, one that has bipartisan agreement uh, uh, in, in both the House and the Senate from this $3.5 trillion package, which is, amounts to a massive array of, of social spending priorities that Democrats have, and in particular, the Green New Deal is essentially a component of this. And that's what Manchin wants out. He doesn't want that in there. And so this idea that maybe he would go into West Virginia and sell the whole three and a half trillion dollar package, including telling coal miners like, hey, you may be out of work, but you're going to get to make solar panels. I, I don't I think that may be a hard sell. I, a couple of candidates have tried that in the past to include Hillary Clinton and uh, yeah, but Joe she did Biden. it very poorly. <laughs> yeah, um, she did it very poorly. And uh, it doesn't typically go that well. So I, I think for now, Manchin is saying, Look, let's just do the things I know my constituents want um, or or might be interested in rather than the things that imperil them with a promise that the government's going to take care of them in the long run. Um, I, I I just, you know, I, this idea, I, I'll tell you about that Bernie Sanders clip. You know, Bernie's always an interesting character to me because, you know, I, I think by and large, I don't I'm not supportive personally of this three and a half trillion dollar package. I think a lot of it is just a, dump, a dumpster fire. Uh, but that said. This idea that like, hey, we need a tax code that is fair is something I agree with. I am, I don't know, you know, if I, I would, I would never go anywhere near as far as Bernie Sanders wants to go. Uh, I think that he has a kind of a confiscatory impulse, but like, you know, look at the Daily Caller's website. I, there was a great article written by none other than our publisher, Neil Patel, in the last week that focused on something called the carried interest loophole. This is a mortgage. This is a this is a hedge fund loophole that basically allows hedge fund managers to take money from investors to um, to invest that money, yield a return, and then collect a commission on the return as a fee. But the way it works is they get they get treated uh, uh, they get a favorable treatment that that's treated as investment returns rather than regular income, so they don't have to pay as much in taxes. It's called the carried interest loophole. Yeah. And, and uh, Neil Patel did such a good job of writing about this. And remember, this is not something, if, you, if this is batting around in your head right now and you're thinking, gosh, where have I heard this before? Donald Trump talked about it back when he ran in 2016. He said he wanted to tackle this. Did not, did not. That, that did, did not, not happen during yeah. his time in office. Uh, and this is the kind of thing where we should have rational discussions around, okay, you know, should a guy who's working, say, in one of those West Virginia coal mines have a harder tax situation, meaning they owe more of a percentage of their earnings than a guy who is managing the portfolios of super wealthy people and then collecting a fee from that and then somehow is given this ex deeply exceptional and somewhat hard to understand because no one talks about it loophole when they pay taxes, where they don't have to pay as much as a percentage. That seems kind of unfair. That's because it is unfair. And so we need a tax system that's not built on cronyism. It's not built on access. It's not built on the wealthy and the powerful getting better deals than the rest of us. We need a fair system that treats all of our income the same and make sure that we've got um, some skin in the game uh, 
for the whole country. And I'll end on this point. I know you have a lot to say about this. I worry about how few actual federal taxpayers we have with each passing year. And it only grew last year in 2020. A majority of the country does not pay federal income taxes now. That's a big deal. And the reason for that is they're getting so much back in like in rebates and tax incentives that by the time tax season is concluded, they're getting massive refunds uh, that will cover whatever they paid out of their paychecks to the federal government. And so in the, the net effect is they are not federal income taxpayers. That's a problem in this country. Now, granted, I like people keeping more of their own money. I love that. But here's where the problem comes. If you walk into uh, your congressman's office, the predicate for you being able to say that you have power over that person is kind of twofold. It's one, you know, you vote in elections. But two, I'm a taxpayer. The money that I'm paying entitles me to have some say over how my government operates. When we get to the point where a very small percentage of the country is paying taxes at all, guess who runs the show? The people who are paying the taxes. And so for that reason, I think we should be really careful before we get to the point where nobody's a taxpayer except for the super wealthy, uh, no matter how little those taxes might be uh, relative to their overall earnings, but they get to call all the shots. Um, I don't like that system. Um, so that, that gets, that opens a whole, uh, I know, I know it's, it, there's a lot, there's <laughs> a lot, there, there's a, there's a, a long way we, we could go with that. I'll just say, um, number one, in terms of, of politicians, um, yes, you are correct, uh, that taxpayers a lot of times call the shots, but I think, you know, people's politicians speak in two languages, money and votes. Mm -hmm. So we, the people are still the voters. And, you know, even though there have been efforts to, to curtail, you know, certain votes, uh, largely Americans uh, are voters and are eligible voters and will be able to make certain decisions based on that. I agree with you about the carried interest loophole. Yeah, absolutely. That needed to change. I, you know, and, and I got to say, it was one of those quiet things where I was like, I agree with Trump. You know, like I, I agreed with Donald Trump on that. But then when he came out with his tax plan, I think, you know, a lot of his big donors, the Sheldon Adelsons, the 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 Koch brothers. You yeah, know, it fell short. It fell short of addressing know, started things whispering that he in ran his ear, And then yeah. he was like, eh, you know what, we're going to keep that for you guys. Um, so I, I there's no doubt that the carried interest loophole and someone needs to say that to Joe Biden. But Joe Biden is a centrist. And in this way. I'm not so sure how different he is from, from Trump. So, you know, we've got to close these things. People have to start, you know, I, I think the wealthiest Americans, I think it was, you know, the top 1% controls more wealth or what is it? The, the, the top 10 wealthiest people have more wealth than the top, the bottom 40% or something crazy that Bernie Sanders always cites the tax burden should be a bond should be upon the super wealthy and let me be clear i'm not anti-wealth i'm gonna be wealthy one day i'm believing it i'm manifesting it i'm putting it out there in the atmosphere right that i'm gonna be wealthy one day but i'm also gonna pay my fair share particularly if i if i have the money which i don't have right now but if i have the money to put my kids in private school and do all the things that i'd really want to do and pay for my kids college out of pocket and, yeah you know do all those things yeah, I will pay some extra taxes, you know, in order to make sure that some mother in West Virginia 
gets childcare and, and that her kid can, can get head start and at three years old and all the things that I would want for my own children. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I believe in, in, you know, the, the wealthy should pay more taxes. I think we're finding more agreement. There's a lot of people out there, some people that we hope to have on the show, the JD Vances of the world and all that, where I find agreement, even across yeah. the aisle in the tax burden of, you know, the wealthy, the Peter Thiels and the, you know, the, uh, Jeff Bezos's, they should be paying the majority of the taxes in this country and they'll still be incredibly wealthy. They should like just pay not- normal tax percentages. That's all I'm saying. And I think you're saying the same thing. Yeah, it's like, no. I, like I, they should just pay, they should just pay their taxes. Amazon should pay taxes instead of having a, a year where they pay zero in federal taxes. That's it, insane. So they should pay taxes just like the rest of us. That's my So you, you're sounding, you're sounding like AOC. You know, everyone says, well, they have job, they create jobs. No, but you should still pay taxes when you're bringing in that kind of profit. You know, it's to the public good that you pay your fair share. And guess what? Your executives will still get bonuses. They'll still be wealthy. You know, they'll still send their kids to private school. They'll still, you know, fly on, you know, first class on jets. Right. You know, nothing, none of that is going to change. The perks of wealth are not going to change. If you pay your fair share of taxes, you know what's and- funny though. You know what's funny though. I think uh, just as a prediction, just imagine if we, if you will, like that we had sort of like a flat tax, for instance, or just a normal, or we, or just our normal income tax system assessed all of the earnings uh, in the country, and and all that money came into the IRS appropriately. Even if that was the case, would the government still be in massive debt? The answer to that is absolutely. They are always yeah. going to outspend the earnings. Uh, so sometimes I do get amused by this debate in the sense that I'm like, really? Like that the only thing you were waiting on to spend money was taxing people more? Like you're not waiting at all, dude. You're going to, the government's just going to keep spending well beyond uh, its capacity, uh, regardless of how fair the, the tax system is. So there's the, well, there's the other side of it too. I agree. I, I think um, since our worldview is, is changing uh, as a country based on like militarism, and we're thinking about military families rather than you know, trying to change the world. I think that that hopefully will change the way we spend our government spends and, and we'll, we'll be more responsible in those ways and spend our money on the homeland and on the home front yeah. and, and do things that benefit the American people, including military families, instead of big time defense contracts or contractors and others that get fabulously wealthy off of your dime. So that, that's basically where I stand. Um, I'm with Bernie in most cases. I think a lot of people, if they heard what Bernie was saying, instead of the way that we characterize him as some sort of crazy person, <laughs> if you hear what Bernie's saying, a lot of what he says makes perfect sense. And it's stuff that even many Republicans, if they actually took what he said and yeah. not the wealthy media interests that, that are like, whoa, I'm going to get taxed more. I don't want that. Um, if they actually listen to what Bernie was saying, I think the common man, the common man and woman and gender non-binary person in West Virginia yeah. would, would agree I with, think, with Bernie. I mean, my position, this is why this is why I find socialists so interesting. Like I I I find his ability to identify problems mostly correct when you identify problems. It's his solutions I object to because socialism, I think, breaks down in this one key way which is it identifies all of these power centers. And it's like, oh, look at these power centers. They're so corrupting. So how are we going to resolve this? Well, we're going to concentrate all of our power within the government in order to resolve that. 
Um, I don't think that works out the way you think it does. It's it, every, all of these power centers always succumb to corruption and that, that tyranny would just shift to a different organization. Uh, and so it's, you know, it, it, this is my objection to Bernie. I mean, I, I do have this kind of sense that this, like the blind squirrel finds a nut. Uh, he's found some nuts, uh, but um, I'm not, a, not a fan of his solutions. That's all. It just hasn't right. typically gone well. Yeah, well, we can we can certainly debate Bernie, uh, you know, a whole lot, and we'll probably do that a couple of times on the show. He is absolutely, uh, I think, one of the fascinating people in Congress. And one thing we can say about Bernie is he's probably the most consistent. When we look at, you know, Donald Trump over the years, he's changed what he thought. You know, you look at Joe Biden, he changes, mm -hmm. but Bernie has been Bernie, you know, Mostly. his entire political career. Mostly for the, the most one. Part. The one area is illegal immigration. He got, he became a dove. He used to be a hawk. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think that makes sense, but we'll, you know, we can talk about that another day. We talked a little it. bit about that today. Hey, thank you so much, Vince. Um, I'm Dr. Jason Nichols. Thank you viewers and listeners, uh, especially you guys out there in the podcast world. We don't show you a whole lot of love just because you won't look at our faces, but we really appreciate you, all of you who are listening on all those different podcasts for uh, platforms. And those of you who see us on YouTube and on Facebook watch, we thank you as well. Like, subscribe, please press the like button, press that subscribe button, keep us going. That'll help. And we're going to continue to, to give you guys, uh, you know, the raw uncut information and debate that yeah. you guys are looking for that's fair and not you know seven on one that you're going to get on cable news this is a different format this is vince and jason save the nation we love y'all peace thanks guys